this episode, I lie to you. I lie to all of you listening. I lie to the person who interviews me because yes, I'm your guest this week. And I've told the world that my all-time favorite book is The Heart is a Lonely Hunter by Carson McCullers. And in truth, that book is definitely up there as one of my all-time favorites. For those of you that know me, I've spoken at length that my favorite book is probably, hopefully still, East of Eden by John Steinbeck. But it's a book that I am reluctant to talk about at length right now, simply because I haven't given it a reread in over 10 years. I have protected it in my mind for a long period of time. And when I was asked to talk at length about a favorite book of mine for a different show, I just didn't want to reread it and reopen that at that time. I'm definitely going to come back to East of Eden. Prepare for that soon, hopefully. But in this episode, it was wonderful to relive an old favorite, if not the old favorite. I learned a lot about myself as a reader way back then. I've learned about how much I've grown as a critical reader, how much I've sort of gained along the way, how life experience informs overall understanding, and how everybody, if you don't write your bestseller at 23, it doesn't mean the rest of your life is going downhill. Enjoy this crossover episode. It's a bit of a throwback to a few months back when I guested on my friend Julie Strauss's podcast, The Best Book Ever. Um, If you didn't catch the episode this week on her show, which was her episode on Howard's End, I'd suggest you check that one out if you haven't heard me heard it on my show yet. But Julie and I are podcast twins, as she so eloquently puts it. It's been a pleasure being a part of the wonderful work that she does. She was a fabulous guest on my show, and I hope I did her justice here. So enjoy this little week where we both took a break and celebrated just the wonderful things that brought these two book podcasts together. Welcome to your favorite book. Hello, bookworms. Welcome to The Best Book Ever, the podcast where we talk about your favorite books. I'm your host, Julie Strauss, and my guest today is my podcast twin, Malavika Prasid. Malavika is the host of the Your Favorite Book podcast, in which she reads her guests' all-time favorite books. Sound familiar? Unbeknownst to each other, Malavika and I started our podcast right around the same time, and I was absolutely delighted when she contacted me and suggested that we interview each other for our twin shows. This is my opportunity to get to know someone who also loves to talk to other people about their favorite books. What a treat. In addition to her own book podcast, Malavika is also a genetic counselor by trade and a writer by passion. She's also a reviewer for the online publication, The Chicago Review of Books, and is currently working on her first novel. I'm so grateful she joined me today to talk about her favorite book, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter by Carson McCullers. The indie bookstore shout out of the week is Malavika's hometown favorite, Bookie's New and Used Books in Homewood, Illinois. They're currently open, limited hours, for masked browsing, and if you want to have books sent to you, give them a call at either location to arrange shipment. Check out their website at Bookies Bookstores, that's B-O-O-K-I-E-S, bookstores.com. 
As always, this is not a paid ad or a sponsorship. Just a reminder that the good people who sell books really, really need you right now. Bookies is a small store, and those hidden gems are always where the very best book buying experiences happen. Please consider doing your holiday shopping from a store that is run by real book lovers and not one run by algorithms. Now, back to the show. Hi, Malavika. Welcome to the Best Book Ever podcast. Hi, Julie. Great to be here. <laughs> you are my podcast twin, <laughs> and <laughs> I'm so delighted to have a twin in this industry. And we're going to get to your podcast in a second, but I have a question that I want to ask you before that. And sure. that is that your bio lists you as writer, book reviewer, and genetic counselor. Yes. I love the disparity in those three titles. Can you tell me about your three jobs? Sure. Yes. So I um, am a genetic counselor by profession. So that is my day job. Um, I find it a very rewarding field. I've been in it for about a year now. Uh, I've been a writer basically my whole life, um, ever since I knew how to hold a pencil. I mean, uh, to date unpublished, but hopefully that'll change in the future. You know, got to keep hustling. And then as a book reviewer, I mainly write reviews for the Chicago Review of Books, which is an independent uh, online publication. And I really enjoyed writing reviews for them. It's sort of a monthly basis. It's a free online publication. Some really great writers and book reviewers contribute. And we talk about new releases. And it's been a great experience. And then I assume at this point, I should probably add podcaster to that bio as well. <laughs> Right. So tell me about your podcast or tell our yes. listeners because I know about your podcast because I already <laughs> love it. <laughs> yes. So my podcast is called Your Favorite Book. And if you can tell by that title, it bears some strong similarities to Best Book Ever. <laughs> and so essentially the premise is pretty similar. I talk to my guests about an all-time favorite book or sometimes my guests have trouble picking. So I say a book you really, really love and want to talk about. And so we sit down, we have a discussion about the book. I ask them, you know, where were you in life when you first found this book? Um, what impact has it made on you over the years? And then I do my own reading and we have a bit of a book discussion. I'll debate with them a little bit, hopefully have some laughs. So a pretty fun conversational podcast that I've been doing for a few months now. And it's been a wild ride. I've really enjoyed it. Yes, it does sound very familiar. <laughs> so let me ask you, how did you get the idea? What made you decide that this sounded like a fun job? You know, I, for a long time, I had thought about doing a YouTube channel to talk about books. And the problem with that is I hate looking at myself on camera. <laughs> I just, I can't, it would just, I'd just be looking at my own face and I'm just like, no, I don't want to see myself talk. And then I'm like, okay, YouTube would just make me very anxious. And then in the last couple of years, I got into listening to podcasts and I really enjoyed some some favorite podcasts that I listened to. And then as quarantine sort of started, I'm like, okay, maybe it's time I just take a plunge and try doing a project like this of my own. Really, this came about of me wanting to stay busy, stay engaged, have something to kind of look forward to. And the podcast has been all of that and more. And this particular idea, I was floating a bunch of different ideas, but for some reason, I've just always been fascinated by what books people really love and take with them and how diverse reading tastes can really be. And I, I just love talking to people about what makes them happy. And so this was just a natural melding of all of that. 
I'm really fascinated at the contrast between your job as the podcast host and talking to people about their favorite book, and then your job as a book reviewer. Mm-hmm. You have to take a more critical eye to it. Um, does that do those two things conflict? They can. So that's why I tell my my book uh, my guests ahead of time that hey, I may not like the book. But my intent is never to be mean about any book that anyone has me read. And I do the same thing when I write book reviews. Maybe I don't enjoy the book at all, but I look at it from a critical perspective. I mean, first of all, you think this book got published. So obviously there are people that see something in the book that I don't see. And I challenge myself to look at books in different ways. Um, I challenge myself to look for things I enjoyed and maybe didn't enjoy as much in every book. And I find that I can usually come up with a few things I really enjoyed, even if I didn't like a book overall. And basically just tapping into why I, maybe I don't like those things. Does it say something about me as a reader? Is it my own biases? Or is it mm. something a little more objective, something that I can relate back to other books I enjoy? It just involves thinking critically as both a reader and as a person and just reflecting back on your own biases. So I think the two kind of go hand in hand that way. I- I've noticed that all of the people, well, I don't know about all, but a lot of the people that you've had on your podcast have been people who are very close to you, your sister, your mom, mm-hmm. uh, your best friend from school. That puts a twofold challenge, I think, there, because not only the challenge of being honest about the book, but also these are people you really care about and you don't want to yep. say, well, you have stupid taste. <laughs> <laughs> so have you had books that you have disliked on the podcast? Yeah, so that's a that's a cool question. So I have definitely had books that I kind of felt weird about getting into and sort of thought, okay, I'm not going to like this. Mm-hmm. And the example I'll give, because she won't mind me throwing her under the bus, is my mom. <laughs> <laughs> my mom um, has been my hero as a reader. And when she told me she wanted to talk about Herzog by Saul Bellow, I was like, mom, could you pick a drier, like, <laughs> her book, like really mom. But I read this book and I found a lot to like about it and a lot to dislike. And I was able to sort of engage with that with my mom. And, you know, it, there were no hard feelings there at all when I pointed out just, hey, mom, this just didn't work. And if anything, it also allows my readers sometimes, sometimes they agree with some of my criticisms or they are able to, you know, take that and add well, this makes me feel a certain way as a result. Maybe we come at it from a different perspective. So another example is I did a self-help book, um, which is Solve for Happy by Mogadot. And I typically don't read self-help books, but Mm -hmm. talking about it with my guest who devotes a lot of time to reading motivational literature, um, we really got to dissect the genre overall and it gave me a really new perspective. So I guess long story short, uh, there are books I may not like going in, but I usually find something to like about them. Would you ever say this book was garbage? You know, I have a guest coming up who... um, (laughs) Oh God, it's not me, is it? No, it's not you. (laughs) I have a guest coming up who I respect very, very much. And when she told me what her favorite book was, I'm like, all right, we're going to do this. And I'm remembering I've read this book before and it was one of my least favorite books of all time. So... (laughs) We are going to read it again, and um, and I'm going to give it a new perspective because it's been a few years, and I've changed as a reader, but um, I'm just excited to learn more about myself and take a closer look at the book. 
Oh, interesting. I can't wait to listen and see if I can figure out which episode that is. Uh, it'll be I'll fascinating. I'll end up telling her if, if she's in good spirits about it, telling her, hey, because I, I have a feeling it's been several years since I had read it. I think I'll soften up on it. I have a little game with several of my very close friends where they try to guess if I actually liked it. See, I appreciate that you're, you try to hide that because I'm usually pretty forthright about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, my rule is always if... If my guest asks, I will say it wasn't really for me, Mm -hmm. but I won't intentionally volunteer it. Yeah, I'm thinking back to when you did an episode on Nabokov's Lolita, Mm -hmm. and you had a very strong reaction to it, which I wouldn't call positive. No, but that was... The benefit of that was that um, the woman who was my guest is one of my best friends, and Mm -hmm. um, it had nothing to do with the writing of the book. And she knows me well enough to know my anxieties. And I was able to say, like, I just I can't. This content is too triggering. And so it still turned out. That's why I love book when you're really talking to book people you really can have those conversations. If anything, I think it's easier with a friend than it is with a stranger. (laughs) So tell me what... um, uh, until you became a, a a book a professional book reviewer and a profess- professional book podcaster, tell me the role of reading in your life. Oh boy, um, reading is basically the first hobby I ever really had. So when I had my mom on the show, I mentioned how she basically read to me as soon as I was a squalling little infant. She'd read Shakespeare. She'd read the newspaper. It was all about you know let the baby get used to their voice and things like that. But I just always had reading in my life and we were a big literary family, especially on my mom's side of the family. We had always tons of books in the house and right from a young age, I was always that kid who had snuck a book under all her textbooks at school and I would get in trouble for reading and didn't want to play outside because I was reading. And um, I had a lot of really great supportive teachers along the way. And then eventually I majored in English in college. Um, Which is funny because I feel like majoring in English, that's probably the time in my life I did the least reading (laughs) Mm. (laughs) (laughs) because I was just trying to not read what was assigned to me all the time. But then once I graduated college and had to make time for reading again, I found my love for it just completely rebound. Like the professional world has been great for just rediscovering books. Really? How so? I just feel like, so when I was reading for school, there's always this tendency that you have to do it. But like when I'm in a high science field right now, I do a lot of research and talking to patients and things like that, nothing really related to reading fiction or memoir or anything like that. But then I come home and I have to carve out the time for reading and that time just becomes more precious and I'm more excited to do it. So it's very much your escapism. Absolutely. And I, I I loved my English classes in college. I loved some of them. There were some classes I was not so keen on. Um, I was never one for the Shakespeare class um, and things <laughs> like that. But I had a lot of classes I just fell in love with and it got me to learn to think more critically about literature. So I loved my English major for that. But now I really like the freedom to choose my own books. Yeah. So when you're not reading something for your podcast or mm-hmm. for your book reviewing, what what types of things do you pick up on your own, on your own dime and on your own time? Great question. So lately I've been doing a lot of um, reading. I've been reading a lot of South Asian and South Asian diaspora fiction. Um, So I come from a South Asian family. My parents are immigrants from India and I had always read a little South Asian literature growing up, but now I've really been making an effort to read more books by 
immigrants from the region or from the region themselves. And, you know, not just the, the common ones that are popular in the West. I've been reaching out to a lot of um, readers and Instagrammers who live in India, and I'm asking what's being published in India now, and I'm trying to get more in touch with what's going on there. And I've discovered all sorts of amazing writers that way. And I, I feel like it's gotten me a little closer to my ancestral culture as well. And I've made a lot of good friends that way. I've found a book club full of people that have similar interests. So I do a lot of reading of uh, modern South Asian fiction. Can you give me an example of one that you've liked recently? Yeah. So um, one book I really enjoyed, and this came out late last year, early this year, and this is called Small Days and Nights by Tishani Doshi. And Tishani Doshi is a Indian-based writer, primarily a poet, but this is her novel. And this book, I feel, avoids a lot of the tropes that South Asian fiction can sometimes fall into because, in essence, it follows a very similar setup where um, a non-resident Indian comes uh, back to India and there's this idea of a homecoming, but it really takes an interesting twist on that. Um, we're, we're, we're shown a lot of the ugliness of India, but a lot of the beauty. And further adding to this story is there's a lot of commentary on the nature of disability in India and what that looks like. And um, I just found that there's a really interesting balance of themes here that you don't see a lot in sort of the Western advertised South Asian fiction. And so I recommend that one to a lot of people. It's not a comforting read by any means, but it's a, it's a really interesting book. Do you do you gravitate towards reads that are not comforting? Do you like a do you like a challenge in your books? I it depends on my mood. I'm very much a mood reader, um, but I would say I gravitate towards more difficult books. Um, I tend to like a shorter book that makes me feel something. A lot of my favorite books are tear jerkers or somewhat sad in some way, as we'll get to with this book. I'm sure. <laughs> Um, but I do like a more difficult book in general. I will say, uh, if I'm particularly fatigued, I have some go-to comfort reads that I'll turn to, but overall, yeah, I do like a bit of a challenge. Tell me how you got to this book that is your best book ever, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. Yeah, so I, I don't remember exactly where I was when I read this, but I'm going to estimate that I was in the eighth grade. And the reason I think I was in the eighth grade is because when I was between, I want to say sixth and ninth grade, I had this really strong fascination with fiction from the South. Mm -hmm. um, and it sort of started for me in the summer before, like seventh grade, where I took an entire summer to try to read The Sound and the Fury by William Faulkner. Oh my which, God. <laughs> which a 12 year old should not try to read. <laughs> I loved it. Um, I basically, I don't know if this website is still up, but when I was reading this book, there was an online, I read it on the computer and somebody had taken the time to sort of color code all of the prose and tell us like where in time Faulkner was flashing back to. So it was like a very heavily annotated version of the book. Oh, and that's wow. what I read. And so at 12, I was able to make, you know, some sort of sense of it that way. Um, if I ever reread that book, I'm going to try to look for that version because I'm not going to read it again. <laughs> but um, I, it, I had that book. Um, I had uh, some fiction by Tennessee Williams, uh, some plays by Tennessee Williams that I loved. Um, other books by Faulkner. I've always had a fondness for Faulkner. And then so I think I picked up this one around that time, either eighth grade or maybe ninth grade. And 
my fascination with Southern fiction, it's interesting. So I grew up in uh, the air. I grew up in Tampa, Florida, but I'll be specific. I grew up about an hour and a half north of Tampa. And the reason I make that distinction is because if you grow up north of Tampa, you're basically in Alabama. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. It already feels very south. And I just thought I had this very like romanticized idea of like the old South, which is super weird being like a child of immigrants. Like this isn't my culture, but I was just very (laughs) fascinated by it. And so Uh this book really appealed to me that way. And um, yeah, so I picked this one up. I will tell you this book has also given me a lot of grief over the years. And the reason for that is, I don't know if you looked into Carson McCullers a bit, but she wrote this book when she was 23 years old. That's when she Mm -hmm. published it. And um, as a young aspiring writer, well into my college years, when I, and then eventually when I turned 23, I told myself I was a failure because I couldn't finish a book. So silly. I'm I'm not even that much older than 23, but it's so silly to think about that I was just holding myself to that benchmark when most people don't publish, you know, what's considered your best work at age 20. Um, But I, I just, I always had this book in the back of my mind for so many years, even though actually I only reread it for the first time in preparation for this podcast before I- Oh, no kidding. Yeah, I had only read it once. I'm not a big rereader in general. So this was my first opportunity to revisit the book. So what was it like rereading it then after so many years of building it up in your head as this is my favorite book? (laughs) (laughs) So it's it's difficult because I ask this question to people on my podcast all the time. Like, do you, have you reread your book? And almost all of my guests have said, oh yeah, I've read this a bunch of times. I've read this at different points in my life. It's meant different things to me over the years. And I think I've only had one guest who has told me, I typically don't reread. And I was like, oh, finally somebody. (laughs) Because for me, I tend to protect the books that I have a very fondness, fond memory of. Okay. I feel like if I'm going to reread it, I'm not going to feel the same way about it. And that scares me. Mm -hmm. So when I reread this, that kind of did happen for me a little bit. I still think it's a great book and I really loved it, but I was much more critical of it the second time around, maybe now that I'm older and a more experienced reader. Before we get to the parts you were critical of, will you do Mm -hmm. a very brief um, synopsis of what this book is about for our readers who maybe, our listeners who maybe haven't read it? Yeah, so definitely. So this essentially is the story of several misfits in a Southern town and how they're brought together by essentially their own loneliness. And it is as bleak as it sounds. Um, So essentially, these are people, we follow several characters, four or five different characters through this book, and they're all cast out from society in some way. Maybe it's due to race or political beliefs or aspirations or disability. They're all sort of cut off from larger society and also just from forming community with others due to introspection. Just they don't quite fit in with everyone else around them. And in the end, they're all just seeking an end to their loneliness. And it's sort of when they all sort of see their narratives collide that this book really starts to take shape. And so what did you find to be more critical about this time around? Yeah, so, I mean, first of all, I'll, I'll mention what I loved because that's always easier for me to, to think <laughs> of. 
I still relate heavily to uh, Mick Kelly, who is the female, she's the young girl that we follow for much of this book. She, I wouldn't call her the central figure. The version of this book I actually have describes her as the central character, which I disagree with. Mm -hmm. um, but she is followed for a large majority of the book. And she's this young girl who wants to make music. She lives in a poor family. She doesn't really have the means for music lessons or a piano the way she dreams of, but she lives her whole life in pursuit of beauty and wanting to create something more and make something more of herself. And I related to that so much. And I probably related even more because I was probably about her age when I first read this book. And so I still felt that fondness for her. Uh, I'm still half in love with John Singer, which is super <laughs> weird. Like he's the weirdest literary crush on earth to have, but <laughs> I remember having that crush and I still kind of felt it reading this. Um, and so a lot of these characters still jump off the page for me. Um, but where I was sort of finding fault with this book the second time around is essentially this book kind of doesn't have a plot for much of it. Um, and depending on what you're in the mood to read, the plotlessness can be a little difficult. There can be times where you're like, okay, where is this going? What is this adding up to? And eventually we know what it's adding up to, but for much of this book, we don't really know where it's going. And that can be frustrating. And I think the other issue I have reading this now with just the overall social awareness and education I have is Dr. Copeland as a character really rubs me the wrong way. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Copeland, uh, for those of you who haven't read this book, is um, basically the main Black character we see in this book. And he is a doctor. This book takes place in the 1930s. Um, and it was written in the 1940s, so in the Deep South. So we can kind of sense the environment here. And mm -hmm. Dr. Copeland's particular views to me read very uncomfortable when you fully realize that this was not written by a Black person. Does that mm. make sense? Yes. I'm so glad you brought this up because this is what I wanted to ask you about. Yep. <laughs> I found myself really wishing I was reading this um, in a university course where someone could be teaching me what... I interpreted a lot of the casual racism of the main character uh, of Mick, who is also mm -hmm. Positioned as the main character in the jacket copy of mine, I interpreted a lot of her casual racism as the racism of the author, mm -hmm. and which I'm not sure is entirely fair. I don't know anything about the author, and so I was really wishing I had someone teach me this book, the way someone taught me um, uh, *To Kill a Mockingbird* the first time I read that, yeah. where I could understand cultural impact. Um, as I was going and sort of see past what we know better now. Yeah, I, I like the comparison you make to To Kill a Mockingbird, because to me, this book touches on a lot of those moments, but without the kind of emotional triumph you get in To Kill a Mockingbird, there's not really that teachable moment. It's mm -hmm. just a lot of the ugliness. And right. we're shown a lot of this ugliness. It's a very similar time period and a very similar setting. And I will admit, I'm not an expert on Carson McCullers. Um, a lot of what's been talked about now lately, she's actually come back into prominence because there was a, a book written recently called My Autobiography of Carson McCullers, 
which is a part memoir, part, you know, nonfiction exploration of uh, McCullers's queerness and examining that in relation to the, the author who compares it to her own queerness. And so the book got nominated for, I think, the National Book Award, things like that. I haven't read it yet. My library doesn't have a copy. Um, but a lot of that's been coming into conversation now, but I have not looked into McCullers' own racism. I assume, you know, with that time period, there there is probably a lot of racism there. But I also do see in ways an attempt to describe people describe people as an oppressed race. She did talk about how African Americans in this culture are oppressed and we are definitely made aware of that. But there are some other like subtle moments where Dr. Copeland is, is trying to sort of get rid of religion from um, the black church, like trying to focus them more on communism, which is super weird. Um, <laughs> and then talking about how they should be having fewer children, which is very awkward reading from a white woman's perspective. And so there are smaller things which I felt like maybe didn't occur as racist at the time, but now reading it with more nuance, we're like, who boy, where do we begin? <laughs> right. I also think it's really interesting that you admit to a literary crush on John Singer because that was so fascinating about him as a deaf mute central character, how everybody projects what they think he is on him and yep. he sort of attracts people to him all the time who just come and either talk or just sit in his presence. And I, I found like I was doing that too. I was, mm -hmm. had this image of my head of what he looked like, sort of, you know, tall and handsome, but not too handsome, not right. intimidating <laughs> and obviously a great listener. Yeah. <laughs> who, would, who wouldn't have a crush on that? There's this idea of, you know, the, the stranger who comes into town and shakes things up. And obviously Carson McCullers wasn't the first to do it. Uh, but there are other books I can think of that do this as well. And there's just something very attractive about that figure, even though, you know, reading this book, they're all projecting their own images of what they want onto Singer. And mm -hmm. even more interestingly, Singer does that too, to mm -hmm. Antonopoulos. He does the same thing. And even amongst the townspeople who don't know, who don't spend time with Singer, he even sort of gets this sort of godlike image Yep. You know, there's all sorts of mythology springs up around him. I, I think your first uh, descriptor of it, bleak, is the perfect word. It's a it's an incredibly sad book, isn't it? It's so sad. I was reading this and I was like, wow, I was a sad teenager. <laughs> <laughs> but I loved the sad. I still love a sad book, like some of my all time other all time favorite books. It's so hard to pick one but they're all sad books. And really, I, I, I love a good sad book. My husband's learned at this point that if I'm crying for no reason, it's probably over a book. Does he know about John Singer? Because that's a pretty sad ending. I, I think I have to tell him at this point. <laughs> I, I have to go through this whole story with him, but it, it's a sad ending. It's a sad book. And really, there's no resolution to this book other than a sad ending. Like if this said it suddenly becomes super cheery at the end, it wouldn't be the same book. Yeah. So is it considered Carson McCullers, it's considered her best book? Yes, which as a writer, I think, I wonder how that felt knowing that your very first book is the best you ever did. Mm. I, because this like apparently was really popular 
around the time it was published. And she's written other books, which I remember reading and enjoying. Uh, I really liked her, uh, The Ballad of the Sad Cafe. Um, I think she has a play called The Member of the Wedding, which I read at some point. So she has some other works, but this is far and away her most famous work. And she also passed away pretty young. I think she was in her early 50s, late 40s when she passed away. So she started young, but didn't have a really long literary career. It's, um, I'm really looking forward to finding that um, biography that you talked about because uh, did you pick up on queer themes in this as well that I just couldn't get my hands around? And I thought, yeah, I kept so thinking, what is going on here? There was definitely queer undertones, I thought. Absolutely. There, I, it was never really fleshed out and realized, but obviously there is very strong, there are very strong bonds in this book. Mm-hmm. And not all of them are overtly sexual, but obviously we have an un- uh, what's the word for it? Basically, um, unconditional love for John Singer and Antonopoulos. And which is odd to think of in a romantic context because we we don't think Antonopoulos is at Singer's intellectual level, so to speak. So that makes mm. things a little more challenging, but there is a very strong love and affection there. And then you see um, just other characters sort of coming to terms with their own sexuality a little bit. Um, Mick trying to figure herself out a little bit. Um, I think in this book, now that I know more about Carson McCullers, it's easier to pick up on some of those themes. Um, But when I was younger, I certainly didn't read into any of it that way. Yeah, I wonder if I would have as well. I think it's only in our in this day and age when we've read so much more and we are coming to understand so many more of own voices, literature, and Mm -hmm. to look at it and go, oh, that's a, that's an interesting one. And also the, um, whose name I've forgotten that the cafe owner who's when his his wife dies and he starts wearing her perfume. And I thought, yeah, that was another thing. Is he, do we have a gender fluid character here? What's happened? It was so fascinating. And it really, I like this book sort of despite myself because I couldn't get my hand around stuff like that because I, I couldn't quite figure out what was going on and so it really did give me this sense of total complexity all of in all of them absolutely these are all very complex characters and I feel like any one of them could have been the protagonist of their own book Mm -hmm. um but I find it interesting you bring up Biff because in my opinion Biff actually stands out from all the other characters and it's for one reason he's the only one that does more listening than talking and Mm. I'm I'm including Singer in that because Singer, when he's with Antonopoulos, he does all the talking. He projects Mm -hmm. onto Antonopoulos and uses him as sort of the emotional release. But Biff doesn't do that with really anybody. He kind of does that with Mick. He projects sort of his want to be a father. But for the most part, he's described as thoughtful. He He asks a lot of questions, which I feel like a lot of these other characters are taking more than they're giving, so to speak. Mm, interesting. There's just, there's so much to this book. Um, like, I, I I feel like this should be taught more. I feel like this book could be taught a lot more in English classes. I don't even know for what grade level, though, because there are parts of this which I think would go over the head. Um, I think To Kill a Mockingbird's just a little easier to swallow, even though I feel like this book could be taught almost in lieu of that in many ways. 
Um, but I feel like this is a book that deserves to at least be better known, but maybe that's uh -huh. my own bias. I completely missed it throughout mm -hmm. my high school, college studies, and then throughout my adult reading life. I mean, I knew of it, but I had never been asked to read it or voluntarily read it. So mm -hmm. I was, I was so glad to get the opportunity to pick it up. Yeah, I, I was, I, when I, when you'd asked me what I wanted to cover, I have a lot of books I consider my favorite. And this one just came back because I also just wanted to revisit it. I, mm -hmm. I had held it in my mind so long and it was like, okay, I need to just break down that barrier and read this again. And I'm happy I did because I did still love large portions of that. There were parts of this book that still stood out to me. And now that I'm old enough to sort of appreciate the rhythm of her prose. I liked that in there a lot. Um, but I also liked just being able to apply my more developed sense of criticism to this book. So if, if you are asked again tomorrow, if we have a podcast triplet out there who has <laughs> <laughs> another favorite book podcast and they, and that person were to ask you tomorrow about your favorite book, would you still count this one as your favorite? I don't know. I, I feel like the more I've read recently, I actually, when I was reading this on Goodreads, I dropped it down a star, which mm. pained me to do. <laughs> but I, I just, I chalked it up to a reread and I'm like, maybe this book will hit me differently 10 years later, since it was 10 years since I had first read this book around and 10 years later, maybe it would, mm -hmm. it'll strike me completely differently. I think I'll always love it in some ways, but I think there might be other books that might have taken precedence. Okay. So tell me, what are you reading right now? Ooh, good question. <laughs> In terms of reading for pleasure, I wanted something light. So I picked up uh, Beach Read. Have you heard of the book Beach Read? I have. Do you like it? I just started it. Um, I have a friend that I admire very much who told me like, this book will fill you with joy. And the last joy filled book she had recommended to me was Red, White and Royal Blue, which did uh -huh. fill me with joy. So I'm like, I can deserve to have a little fun once in a while. So I'm reading, exactly. just started it. <laughs> I would be really interested to hear what you think of it because people keep talking about that book is so light and frothy and it I didn't think it was. Really? I think there was okay. also, there's definitely an undercurrent of sadness to Beach Read as well. I, I really liked it. I thought it was a really fun read. Mm -hmm. But it's definitely not as frothy as a lot of people say it is. Yeah. And if anything, that makes me a little more excited because uh -huh. you know me, I like a sad book. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> I have a problem when things are like too, I, I will say, uh, one book I read recently that did fill me with pure joy, and I always recommend this book to everyone since I read it last month, and it is The House in the Cerulean Sea by T.J. Klune. Um, This book's gotten a lot of buzz. This book is just like pure fantasy British joy, and there is no deep sadness to it the way I felt with some other books, and I just think it's marvelous and I recommend it to everyone. So pick that one up. Oh, I love hearing that. I had, um, when I had Jeff Adams on, he just went on and on about TJ Klune. And since then, so many people have recommended his books to me. And that is such a thrill. I've just heard this one is fantastic. It is so good. And I haven't read any of his other works. I sort of picked this one up on a whim because I liked how the cover looked. Mm -hmm. And I was blown away and I'm going to find all his other books because I, I was just 
so enthralled by the universe he had created and it, it felt like reading it felt like watching the great british bake-off that's how i described uh, it. oh my gosh that sounds magical it really is how do you get your book recommendations for your 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 pleasure book these days it's instagram i mm. have discovered the book community on instagram has been so helpful and particularly what i love about instagram lately is there's a very large contingency of BIPOC reviewers. Mm -hmm. And that's something I'm very passionate about is reading books written by and recommended by Black, Indigenous, people of color, uh, writers and readers. And so I have just been enthralled by reading fiction and nonfiction recommended by these um, these bookstagrammers and as well as other podcasts. So there's a lot of book podcasts that I really enjoy. I've picked up recommendations from them. Basically, anyone who knows me, they'll if they've read a good book, they immediately message me and they're like, you might like this. And I add it to my <laughs> ever-growing pile. <laughs> Tell me some of the other book podcasts you like. Oh, yes. Um, so I will definitely shout out Tracy Thomas over at the Stacks podcast. She has mm. a great interview podcast, which I really love. Uh, her guests are always so much fun and I learn new stuff from her all the time. Um, another one is um, Novel Pairings Pod, which is run by... Um, Chelsea and Sarah, they're English teachers, and so they pair classics with modern books, and I always, the English major in me loves that one. <laughs> and then um, the only time I will curse on your show, uh, the <laughs> other one is Fuck Boys of Lit by uh, Miss Emily Edwards. Who what? I made oh, I've never heard of this. Do tell me everything. Okay, well, first <laughs> of all, you're going to really like her because she's going to be coming on my podcast pretty soon. Yay, um, I can't wait to hear She is excellent. So she basically takes on fuck boys from the literary canon. So she started off with a bang by having a whole episode on Lord Byron. And then she goes into Victorian literature. She goes into modern literature. Um, she, she runs such, she was basically my introduction to book podcasts in general. Uh -huh. And so I highly recommend her show to everyone. I laugh at it all the time and it's a great show. Oh my God. What a brilliant idea. People are so damn clever. It really, it is super clever. And I, I listened to this and I'm like, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> oh, that is fantastic. I'm glad I asked you this question because now I'm so thrilled. I already knew the other two, but now I get mm -hmm. to add that one to my queue. That's fantastic. Oh, for sure. Check it out. Malavika, this has been an absolute delight talking with you. Will you tell our listeners where they can find you in all of the places? Absolutely. So my podcast, Your Favorite Book, is available on pretty much all the major platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. So it's just as it sounds, Your Favorite Book. Um, I'm always taking guests for the podcast. So if this sounds up your alley, you can always reach out to me. Um, but yeah, and you can also find my uh, reviews on Chicago Review of Books by just searching Chicago Review of Books, Malavika Proceed. You can find me that way too. I did that this afternoon and I added a whole bunch of books to my TBR. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today. This has really been fun. No problem. It was a delight and I look forward to having you on my show. I can't wait. My book twin. Thanks for listening, bookworms. For more information on this episode and links to everything we discussed, please go to our website, bestbookeverpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at bestbookeverpodcast. I'm your host, Julie Strauss, and you can find me everywhere as Julie Wrote a Book. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on whatever podcatcher you use. 
Reviews really help our visibility to new listeners, and we are so grateful for everyone. If you want access to exclusive content, including extra interview time with our guests, advance notice of the books we're going to discuss, monthly curated book selections, and more, go to patreon.com slash bestbookever. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash bestbookever to support us. Your financial support really helps with the expenses of running this podcast. Thanks for joining me today, and I will see you at the library.